you probably have had uh, a certain view about marriage, or if you're, if you're anticipating marriage, you, you might have a view that comes, that you get married to someone, maybe it shows up particularly if they're from a different cultural background, which doesn't necessarily have to mean nationality, it just speaks more to the way that they grew up, um, what their family of origin looked like, what their habits were, what their traditions were, then you discover that the things that you grew up with that were just what you've always believed, maybe they're not as important as you thought they were. These issues are the kinds of things that can be really big deals or just kind of the stuff that lives out in every day and it impacts the way we relate to each other. When, when, when you come together, uh, what, what does that idea of food look like to you? When, when, when food is absolutely new to you, it, it could be like an absolutely no, forget it, not going to happen, I'd never eat that, it's too spicy, it's too salty. But over time, you can broaden your tastes and you realize that your absolute statement was inaccurate. You have been able to develop or to modify your tastes. Maybe you can eat pineapple after all, even on pizza. In, in marriage or in any longer-term relationship, you can learn to argue or disagree better. Not that you would get better at disagreeing, you know, like, I disagree with you about everything. But, wow, that's just so freeing. Uh, but, but, but now when there is a clear commitment to stay in the relationship, you can argue or disagree from a place that I have an assurance in this relationship. The argument fits under the relationship. So assurance has been built, has the built-in flexibility to bend and to reshape as time and circumstances change. We have assured each other that we are staying together. Now, because of that, how will we work this out? Certainty is different. Certainty is rigid. Certainty is, this is how it's going to be. It doesn't welcome discussion. It welcomes compliance. For there to be a we, we need to do it this way. My way. Parenting. Before you become a parent, you are a perfect parent. Preparation and previous experiences allow you to feel certain about outcomes with kids. If we do certain things, then certain things will happen. It all feels very clear, cause and effect. Then real life happens. And the sense of certainty is just thrown out the window. We love each other. That's the first thing. Now let's face what this day has for us. We'll weather the weather, whatever the weather, whether we like it or not. Let's navigate this together. But, but in that navigation, we have this assurance that we love our children and they love us and we roll with whatever else happens after that. Assurance is much more relational. It honors the relationship. Certainty is much more propositional and conditional. So what might this look like as it's lived out? There's a, a pretty typical teenage girl crying dramatically into her Kleenex. Her mom and her dad are with her, and they are worried. And this is not a totally unusual thing, but the conversation is unusual in the actual content of the conversation. The girl's crying because she says that she's losing her faith, and, and the Bible course that she was taking was causing her to lose her faith. Some of the content in learning about the Bible was causing her to think that somehow God isn't good. And now I don't want to follow God. And her parents are there and they're super, super concerned. But from my perspective, you know, I'm not that worried. I mean, I've seen this before. I've, I've seen this path before. 
I don't think that you're losing your faith. I think that you're asking some questions. I think your faith is getting stretched. I sense that you are thinking, thinking more and more deeply than you have previously. And the dad says, I just want her to go back to the little girl where she was happy before and she didn't ask any of these questions. Well, dad, we're kind of past that now. We're going to have to dive into these questions and wrestle with them because we can't go back. You have crossed over. This is a good thing. This is a normal thing. This is a proper part of maturing both as a person and as a person of faith. But, we are going to have to wrestle these down. So how do we do that? Her mom jumps in. Helpfully, uh, I suppose that's what she thinks she's being, makes a very telling statement. Listen to this. She says, Jesus asks us to believe some things that don't make any sense. But this is how we know that we are true Christians. That we hold on to these things that make no sense to us. This is how Jesus knows that we are Christians. And that's why we'll end up in heaven when we die. Wow, what a summary of her faith. I have never really heard the same argument that people used to walk away from the faith, used to hold on to the faith. Because I've heard that same kind of statement coming from agnostics or atheists or people who are really struggling and questioning their faith. People say stuff like, if God was really good, why would this happen? Really simplistic kinds of statements. The feeling out there says, you know what, don't ask any questions, okay? Because questions are wrong, and questions lead to doubt, and doubt leads to having no faith. So a shallow faith Christian says, I do not ask questions. And I've heard that way too many times. Mom was saying, don't ask any questions. Questions are bad. She was also saying uh, that you have to take your faith brain out. And, and, and then you can go and live the rest of your life as a regular, normal human being. And then when, you know, you go to church on Sunday, you, you, you flip the Jesus brain back on. And then you can just believe these things on, in church on Sunday. They don't make any sense at all. Because you see, dear, only a very few people are actually Christians. Wow! These situations reveal what passes as faith for so many. And I don't want that for you. So people say you have to stay on the straight and narrow. Instead of chasing these questions down, instead of wrestling with doubt and wrestling with uncertainty, just shut it all down. Just stop thinking about it. Shut it down because in pursuing or in indulging in doubt, we're actually showing that we are not faithful to God. We are somehow not passing the test of Jesus in believing these strange things. And I've never heard it in such black and white terms before. What happens when the people of trust in our relationships, like parents and teachers and priests and pastors, what happens when they don't know how to help you, when they can't help you answer these questions? Well, those same people can actually become the problem that are really, the problem is just their desire to fix it. Fix it fast, fix it right now. If they had the answer to these questions, they would not have been saying these things to their daughter. 
It's more because they don't know the answers to these questions that the problem is growing. It expands because doubt is feared. Instead, we could say, well, we're going to show you what it's like to have assurance in Jesus. Let's go forward in our earnest pursuit of him. Your questions are great questions, and frankly, I don't know all the answers. But your mind is working so well right now. We're going to learn with you. And it's great because we've got a community that we can learn with. We have resource people that we can go to and work this stuff out. Maybe we could talk to our pastor. Maybe we could talk to another Christian friend. You know what? I, I, I just know that there must be some helpful resources out there like books or studies or maybe even videos. Let's find some. Let's see what we can discover together. The pursuit of this understanding, the quest after God will be good for all of us. It'll draw us together and we'll be better for it. Let's go and engage in our earnest pursuit of Jesus. Or instead of all that good stuff, we're going to say, no, 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 no. That's not what we do here. I don't want other people to know that there's any doubt or questions in our house as if questions are bad. What will they think of us as parents if there's doubt in our house as if doubts are rare? What will they think of us when they realize that we don't really know the answers to those questions ourselves? Come on, that's embarrassing. As if it is expected that you know everything. I don't want people to be mean to me and say, you should know more because I should know more and I already know that I should know more. Into one. Can we please agree up front that we will never treat people with honest questions like they are stupid for having questions. We welcome questions. Can we agree up front that that we, us, will always be in pursuit of truth, even me, especially me, even when, or especially when that pursuit necessarily takes us through muddy, doubt-filled trenches. Our earnest pursuit of Jesus has nothing to do with living a doubt-free or a question-free life. This girl was getting set up to grow up with no orientation about how you love God as a complete human, with your heart, with your soul, and with your mind. Together, let's agree that no longer will the scandal of the Christian mind be that we don't have one. Let's pursue truth. Let's gain understanding. Let's base our earnest pursuit of Jesus on our assurance of the resurrection and on our relationship with Jesus and not on the certainty that we feel currently on a collection of propositions and thoughts. Let's live out this pursuit in honesty, integrity, and filled with authenticity that the world may know. The faith that was being thought about by these parents was the exact same faith, the exact same way that you think about faith when you're five years old. There are Bible stories that give a moral message. And that thinking isn't wrong when you're four and five. There is a correct application. But remember, we don't think about math, sorry to say that word, the same way at 18 years old that we do when we are six. Why would we think about the Bible and faith the same way? And yet that certainty mindset arises. 
that we have to drive into our kids at a young age. That's the message coming through. And, and then we're seeing adults that still have that same way of thinking about their faith as they grow up and out of childhood. And now they don't know what to do. Drives me a little bit crazy when, when, I, when I see that people are walking away from the faith or, or they feel like they have to. They feel like they've lost their faith when, when, when they don't have to. They got taught somewhere along the way that it all hangs on a, on a this, right? Someone like mom has said, okay, here's the line, all right? Anything above this line cognitively or behaviorally makes you a Christian. Below the line, you're out. Certainly there are some core things, but it has much more to do with the direction that you are moving than where you are at any one point in your life. It is the earnest pursuit. Jesus didn't say, attend me, right? He said, follow me. Attendance doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Jesus didn't say, you know what? Believe in Noah's Ark. It's all about Noah's Ark. And then we're all good. And then you start maybe to feel like, well, it sounds to me like the story of Noah's Ark. Well, it doesn't make sense, and I can't believe it for all these reasons. So, therefore, there's no Noah's Ark. And that means that there's no, that, that Jesus can't be God's son. So, therefore, I don't have anything to do with God or with church or with Jesus. How did that happen? How did we let that awful caricature of us ever happen? And that's one of the reasons that we are doing the text series. We have seen this as a barrier to faith. And we are partnering together, us, you and me, between each other and partnering with the Holy Spirit to break down these barriers, to set people free. Let me just make this part crystal clear, okay? You, you might be nervous about talking about Jesus or your faith because, well, what if they ask me a question that I can't answer? Let's be clear. No one has all the answers. No one. I certainly don't. And frankly, your concerns might never have been my concerns. Perhaps I have honestly just never thought about that before. That issue doesn't strike me the same way that it seems to strike you. But if that's the way that you're going to approach your faith as a list of answers that you need to have, if that's what holds you back from being able to just share with someone what Christ has done in you, what he's doing in you now, then you will never share your faith ever. That certainty mindset that, that perhaps we have ingrained in people and the fear of being uncertain in our culture is so strong that people don't want to say anything because they do not have all the answers. And in our drive to create certainty, we created fear instead, instead of assurance. Early Christians didn't attend church. They were the church. They followed Jesus, and we are to follow Jesus, um, to follow him through it, whatever the it is. And together we go forward to overcome, to bear up under, and to come through. And the together part is really, really important. When you talk to people who have what you believe is real faith, they have walked with God. And as you hear their story, there's always this period of time that involved doubt or questioning. They, they have had some sort of crisis of faith. But we've also all met those people who have not faced 
that crisis of faith. And they, they sort of pushed it down and they have not come through it. But it's necessary to go through, to choose your own faith, to deepen your faith, to go to a place that you could never have gotten to if you hadn't asked those hard questions and faced those deep doubts. We're going to look at more of this in detail again next week as we start that new series called Breaking Down Barriers, right? When we stop that process from happening, we are creating shallow Christians. And who wants to be a shallow Christian? Are your roots planted deep by the waterside as described in Psalm 1? Verse 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Verse 2, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Three, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Four, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Six, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Six, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. When the hot sun comes out and when the leaves wither, the only way to get those roots deep is to allow safe space for those doubts and these questions to be processed well in a safe community. The idea is that the tree that grows well will produce fruit. This is an assurance that we have. And now in the ancient world, perhaps more than in the modern world, the idea is that the fruit that the tree produces is good for the whole surrounding community and not just the individual. There's something about the fruit of this kind of wrestling that is good and not just good for you. It's good for others to share in so that they know that others go through this as well. These are not new questions. The questions that you have are rarely yours alone. No tree shows fruit all the time. The fruit comes in season. And there will be times when things feel more dry. Where's the fruit? You know what? That's okay. We continue to allow the absorbing of sunlight, the water, the nutrients from the soil to continue to build the continued growth of the tree. Don't worry. The fruit will come. You just have to wait for it. Part of the growth is that assurance. We are assured that the fruit does or the fruit will come. This is what trees do. We are assured that God is faithful. Now, the fruit comes even more when there is pruning, and the pruning represents some suffering, and more about this again next week. Suffering is not somehow evidence of God's absence or God's abandonment. Christianity is not a moment when you say a prayer. Christianity is, is the ongoing part. It's the discipleship part. It's the part of being an ongoing follower of Jesus. So, so don't try to be a Christian. Train to be a Christian. If you try to be a Christian, you're going to fail because failure is absolutely part of it. But if you train to be a Christian, well, failure is part of that development. You capture the benefit even from what seems like the negative and you get back up. You learn from the misstep. We need the coaching to help us think about where we are and where we're going and 
We train to get past these points. So much of our way forward is dependent on the way that we see or understand God, our theology. So when we have a question, do you believe that God says, oh, did it hear, dear? They figured out there's a hole in my thinking. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? Did God suddenly get nervous because an 18-year-old girl asks a question about whether or not he is a good God because there's child slavery in the world? How you see God shapes how you live. The spiritual practices and the next steps that you're taking that you choose to implement become part of your discipleship process. And you're not supposed to sit still. One of the steps that we take together is the celebration of communion. We celebrate this together. So there's a familiar passage, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the, he took the bread. And you, at home from whatever communion elements you've set up. Take your bread item. You know, you could even write in the chat, what is it that you're using today? Did you have the proper unleavened bread and a glass of wine? Or are you using Doritos and Mountain Dew? What is it that you're going to be using today? Take that bread part. The breaking part, I think, is a good thing to be able to do. It's tactile. It makes you feel like something happened, but it reminds us what happened to Jesus, right? It, again, his body was broken, ripped apart. That, that's, that's part of the story, and it's an important one. It describes the suffering that was there, the gift that he gave. So we take part of that. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the covenant, the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 26, for when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death and at the same time be assured and strengthened in your faith as you recall the resurrection from the dead. So take your bread and take your grape juice or your wine or Sprite, whatever it is that you've got. Take these things, these elements. Kind Father, thank you for what you put in motion. Even when we didn't believe you, even when we weren't doing anything that would have remotely caused you to love us, you already did love us. Even while we were sinners, you sent Christ to die for me. Even while we were still sinning, you sent Christ so that there would be hope, there would be a possibility of this forgiveness. And so, God, we take these elements and we thank you for them. We realize that they're symbols, but they're a symbol that, that op opens up a, a, a gateway of grace between you and us. And as we take these things and we, we remember what Jesus has done, we are thankful because we know the cost is incomprehensible. 
as is the benefit. Incomprehensible. For what you have done, Jesus, we thank you. For what you have given, Jesus, we thank you. And because it's my desire, and hopefully the desire of my friends today as well who will participate, that you would be Lord of our life, that we would live with assurance of you in submission to your will, following you by taking next steps day after day in earnest pursuit of you. If that's what we want to do, then this is the place that we can say it again. When we have a community that we can share it with, we can share it with them and look at each other and remind ourselves of what it is that we believe, what it is that we are about. And so we take the bread and not just look at it, but we put it inside us as if saying, this is what I want to make up me. I want this to be what I am made of. I want Jesus and His Spirit within me. If that is your desire, then take this bread. In the same way, we also take the cup. The blood of the new covenant. We are not held any longer under the weight of the old covenant that reveals to us that failure is just what we are. The cup of the new covenant. We find grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Take the cup. The together part of communion is something that I, I really miss. And uh, I, I've thought about this for a, a couple of months. I've, I've noticed this and i got to say, I really miss Betty. Betty had for years helped me by setting up and preparing communion so that, well, so that you could all participate and we could do that together. And I miss that, that Betty would set that up for us and help us out. So thank you, Betty. I appreciate what you have done. And I look forward to the chance for us to share in communion that same way. But this celebration part of communion is best. If we can't do it here like this, then, then maybe you can experience it in, a, in, in loving, sharing, generous, eating the whole meal, the love feast. Experience that with other loved ones, whether they're biological uh, family or their spiritual family. Enjoy this celebration of each other, delighting in what Jesus has done. That celebration, uh, eat and, and, and feast together. And today we have a guide to help you prepare for that celebration. Uh, one, one option, at least anyways. Take it away, my man, Griffin. Griffin.